This is a reading from God's word from Luke eleven thirty seven through 54. <clears throat> While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Gigi. That was cheery, wasn't it? So hopefully I'll insult lots of people this morning like Jesus did in that passage. Uh, No, seriously, um, good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, at Church of the Redeemer, and we're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you're a guest with us, we're into what we're calling uh, part three of Luke's Gospel, The Road to Jerusalem. You'll see in the worship folder, uh, you should have received, there's a little insert on one side is the outline, on the other side is the the passage uh, that Gigi just read. Uh, The framework for The Road to Jerusalem is, is back in chapter 9, verse 51, And if you have a Bible, you want to turn there, or you use the Bible in the pew, or just listen. But in 951, Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The direction, literally speaking, the direction of Jesus' life and ministry changes as he sets his face to uh, to go to the city 
of Jerusalem. So now everything, all that he says, all that he does, from this point on is governed by that reality, setting his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, His mission of giving his life for the sake of the world is coming into clearer and clearer focus. But notice, too, that as Jesus' rhetoric ramps up, so does the opposition to him. Uh, In chapter 9, he says, listen, if you're going to follow me, let the dead bury their dead. He says, if you're going to follow me, uh, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but you might not have any place to put your head. He says, if you're going to follow me, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. It's all or nothing, right? And then he sends out the 72, which last week, Lyle Caswell from our sister church in Lakeland uh, talked about, particularly the first three verses of the fact that we're sent because Jesus was sent. But if you keep going, uh, he, he just kind of keeps ramping things up. And jump over into chapter 11, and we're beginning in verse 37, but uh, if you set the stage for the text this morning, even in verse 29, listen, Luke says this, when the crowds were increasing, he then began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Okay, that's definitely the way to win friends and influence people, right? As your crowd increases, you look at them and say, you are an evil generation. Okay? So he's, he, he's on it, man. He, he's, he's moving in that direction. The people's unbelief and lack of repentance is what he is confronting at the presence of one greater than Jonah. And then he confronts them about what they're full of, light or darkness, and the connection that what they let in through their eyes. He says, be careful, verse 35, lest the light in you be darkness. And then comes to our passage. While he's in the middle of speaking, a Pharisee invites him over for a dinner party. Now, remember the Pharisees. These are the same guys who back in chapter 5 were already making judgments on Jesus' choice of company as he was invited to another dinner party by a very different person, Levi, a tax collector. They asked, "Why why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, now one of their own is inviting him to sit and eat, and and Jesus goes. Don't miss that. I think it's significant because it's amazing. He's willing to be associated with both the most irreligious people and the most socially outcast, ostracized people, but also the most religious and most well-respected and, as you'll see in a minute, the most fake in society. He's willing to be with both. They've been judging him all along for being too inclusive and too gracious of those they don't like. But notice it doesn't stop him from including these guys in his time and accepting their invitation. So while he was still speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine, and so he went in and reclined at table. And so we come to this text, and we're going to take up three things. You'll see them there in the outline in the worship folder. Uh, Three things I think we can learn from this dinner with Jesus, and they correspond to those three points. First, what's the core problem for them? Their problem then. Why did Jesus feel the need? What about their life gave him the opportunity to present or, excuse me, to pronounce woe on them? Secondly, how are we just like them? And how does this passage help us know if we are just like them? How does it help us determine if we have a similar problem. And then finally, what do we need to be healed? 
from the inside out? How does the gospel work? How does it make us clean and fill us? Because, as you'll see, that was part of the big problem for the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay, so first, their problem. I want to walk through some of these woes, not all of them, but some of them, because I think walking through them helps us get a sense of what the core issues were for them. It'll also give us some similarities between them and what themes Jesus is kind of weaving through as he talks to them. Now, what's the significance of a woe? Uh, Why did he use that word? Uh, You might recall, if you were here, it's probably been about two months ago now, but in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus pronounces woes the first time, that day, that that Sunday, Drew explained the idea behind the word is really something like, poor you, or or, pity. The person who's, I feel sorry for you. The person who's saying it is expressing pity or, or, or woe or, or just sadness over the way that the person's living their life or the group in this case. So, so here it's, it's poor you, Pharisees. The message translation says over and over again through this passage, you're hopeless, you Pharisees. You're frauds. It's a verdict, definitely, but it's also an expression of his love for them and his concern for them, his desire to see their hearts change. You can sense his soberness all the way through the passage, but you can also sense some of his pity and his his sadness too. But I want to caution you uh, as we're going through this, Jesus is not criticizing the Pharisees' desire to keep the law, to follow the laws of purity, tithing, and the like. He's not criticizing their desire to keep the law. What he's attacking, what he's criticizing, is their fundamental neglect of their own hearts. Right? They disregard their own hearts. They are blind to the corruption and the sickness of their own hearts. Because their emphasis is exclusively on what is outside, what is observable, what is measurable. He calls them fools, right? And a fool is someone who doesn't live according to reality. So they're blind. They're not living in reality. He says, first woe, okay? He says they're careful and meticulous to clean the outside of the cup. Metaphor for their lives themselves. But inside, they're rotting away. They're full of wickedness. He's responding to their astonishment, or this particular host's astonishment, that he didn't wash prior to the meal. But ritual washing wasn't a biblical rule. It was something that had been added in over time. And the Pharisee wasn't appalled at Jesus because the Pharisee was a germaphobe. He didn't, he didn't even really know germs existed like we do, right? They didn't have, uh, you know, uh, yeah, hand sanitizer. I'm trying to think of a brand name, but I can't off the top of my head. The Pharisee wasn't appalled at that. He was appalled at his disregard, Jesus' disregard, for what had become a legalistic code for the religious people of that day, the righteous people of that day. You can almost sense the humor in what Jesus says in response to him. Not even the Pharisees thought, of course, that if you just wash the outside of the cup or dish, the dish or the cup would be classified as clean, right? That's ridiculous. It's irrational. But the metaphor becomes the basis for Jesus' declaration of their foolishness. Now, if I stood up here and I held up this beautiful piece of Lenox bone china, a coffee cup, let's say, You're probably going to admire it from out there. You're probably going to think, wow, that's amazing. It's beautiful. Look at the ornate 
uh, time and, and, and craftsmanship that was taken to make that until you were to walk up here and look inside and see that I had it full of raw sewage. Then it wouldn't be so beautiful anymore. Or maybe the outside would still be beautiful. But something about it wouldn't make you want to go drink a cup of coffee out of it. Even if I poured it out and washed it out and said, here, right? That is Jesus' description of the way the Pharisees presented themselves to the community. As if they are this beautiful piece of fine china. But on the inside, it's raw, it's ugly, it's nasty. He says, going on, that they are careful and meticulous to practice tithing even down to the number of herbs they're growing. And in one sense, they were keeping the law, which Jesus commends them for doing. Okay? Don't miss that. Verse 42, these you ought to have done. Right? He commends them. And yet the summary of the law, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, was nowhere to be found. They were neglecting justice. They weren't working out a love for God. Yes, they were obeying the command to tithe, but their hearts were empty of love for God and love for others. Now, here's the foolishness. As they're giving of their resources to honor God's law in their lives, their blindness to attending to their own hearts actually produces not generosity, but stinginess. Their neglect of justice was seen in their unwillingness to associate or to give their time to outcasts, to the lame, to the unclean. And instead of the law being an invitation to be generous, they've turned the law into a measuring stick for faithfulness. Instead of of the law drawing them into a sense of their inadequacies, they used it to show up how adequate they were to keep it. That's part of what legalism and self-righteousness do. We, We set standards by which we measure our own faithfulness and everyone else's faithfulness too. And I'll I'll get to that more in just a few minutes. He says two more things to them. Okay? He continues to critique their external posturing and pretending. They love having a great public image. From their seats in church to their cheers-like experience walking through town. Right? Those of you that that, uh, don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parents about cheers and the theme song or what it was like for one of the regular characters to walk in and what they, they were met with. Norm! You know, that's the way the Pharisees' experience of, of, uh, the, of their, their local towns was everybody knew them. Jesus says, you're like unmarked graves. In Matthew's gospel, he says whitewashed tombs. What people see is something ritually clean, moral, pristine, shiny, Law conscious, what, what, someone who avoids corruption and, and dead stuff. But the irony, okay, verse 44, you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. The irony is that the very people most concerned with avoiding corruption and defilement, Jesus says, are actually carrying it around. They're actually leading people astray because people might see green grass, but the Pharisees are spreading death and slavery. It's subtle and stealthy, but because of their mask of religiosity, people don't realize that they've actually come into contact with corruption. And you see how offensive that would have been to them? That these are the guys who are the most clean, the, the most uh, ritually pure. Now, don't forget, this is a dinner party. My favorite verse 
uh, in, or my, my two favorite verses in the whole passage are 45 and 46. This is a dinner party uh, in a Pharisee's home, but the lawyers and the scribes, as other translations might put it, are there too, right? The, these two groups of people hung out together. And because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, you know, I love verse 45. Teacher, uh, you're insulting us too. Well, woe to you too. Here we go. Oh, by the way, I've got some woes for you too. I mean, I, I, it, I love it. If, if I had any Jesus in me, it would be more like this than some of the other nicer things you read him doing in the Gospels. Maybe that's why I like this passage so much. Jesus says, the lawyers load up burdens, expectations, demands on people, but they don't lift a finger to help them. And the Greek words that are used, or that he uses here, is a word for cargo, a ship's cargo. We're talking about heavy stuff, right? The scribes stand by while other people struggle. In other words, they're quick to point a finger and yet slow to lend a helping hand. I mean, that's, that's the idea. He goes on to uh, critique them a little bit more. But I want to move uh, from there to see... we. We've got similar problems, okay? All of us get caught at one point or another in reading this text, or at least we should. We have so many things in common with them, right? Uh, Many of us are successful, well thought of, moral, nice, self-righteous, judgmental. And as you listen to the critiques of Jesus, the question is, do do you find yourself saying, man, I'm just like that, Or, or... wow, that's really a problem for me. Or, as Gigi was reading, and as I'm kind of going through those for the last few minutes, do you find yourself more frequently thinking, man, so-and-so really struggles with that. I wonder if they know. Maybe they need me to be Jesus to them. Woe to you, right? I dare you to go say that to somebody this afternoon. Uh, or you're finding yourself saying, wow, I wish so-and-so realized how much of a Pharisee they are. Yeah. Right? Let me encourage you with a caution. Part of the way you know you have a problem, like them, is when you tend to focus on what other people's faults or self-righteousness is. I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, I, I'm really, I, I love being uh, others-centered, but I get self-righteous about when I see people being others-centered more than me, and I want to say to them, you're not more others-centered than me. I mean, you see how, how silly it is, how irrational it is, but yet how real it is, right? If reading the woes makes you think about everybody else except you, then you probably have a problem. I, we have a problem. It's part of the reason why self-righteousness is so dangerous. Uh, It so easily blinds us to its existence. It deceives us. We all need honest friends who love us enough to warn us. That's why look at, uh, if you have a Bible open, uh, I'll read it to you or reference it if you don't. But it's, it's why Luke 12 begins with Jesus warning thousands of people. Okay? Verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, but ultimately to all of them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We need friends who are loving and caring enough to tell us 
when this is a problem. The text this morning is Jesus trying to be a good friend to these guys. He's trying to warn them, to tell them they have really bad breath. You know, that's what self-righteousness is like. It's like really bad breath. And when you have it, you don't realize it most of the time. And then your wife says to you, you need some gum. I'm talking about maybe you. It's not an experience I've had. Or have most Sundays. Um, Same goes for self-righteousness, right? Jesus' woes to the Pharisees have a theme. And the theme is, they saw obedience as right behavior, as doing good, that what people see me doing, how I am in front of them, that's the real me, right? Thus their meticulous attention to and focus on keeping the law, being seen keeping the law, not just keeping the law, but get this, it's being seen keeping the law, right? Our culture sees the way to change as a change in circumstances, a change in lifestyle or behavior, but what if the source of the pollution... What if the source of the problem is something else? If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're investigating Christianity or or church, this is where Christianity and modern culture diverge and they fundamentally disagree. Because an example would be you go get an EKG and the EKG shows that your arteries are so clogged up with plaque and it's a wonder that you're even still breathing. And, And you're... You know, the, 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 the cardiologist says, you need to go see a surgeon. This is a big, this is a big deal. I mean, you're, you're on the, the, the uh, threshold of death. And you say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out. I'm going to run three miles every morning and become a vegetarian. Now, I didn't go to school as long as uh, my friend Dr. Dodd did. But I know enough to tell you that ain't going to cut it. Why is it not going to cut it? Because the root problem is that you need surgery. You can't go out and run three miles and become a vegetarian and pretend like everything's okay, right? What about if you saw a house, you're looking for a house that's for sale, and you come upon one, and it's beautiful. It's got wonderfully manicured St. Augustine grass. The shrubs are cut. The roses are blooming. The azaleas are gorgeous. There's these pillars in the front. It's, it's, uh, it's clean, there's, it doesn't need to be pressure washed. The paint job is brand new. It looks gorgeous. Would you buy it? Well, of course not. Why? Because you would say to me, uh, what's the inside look like? You know, <clears throat> that's exactly, though, how we approach spiritual things. We, we often ignore the core problem and think changing some externals will help uh, produce change or, or, or fix the problem that I have or that other people have. That's the way our culture teaches us to handle things. Listen, why is it that the Department of Corrections is not radically transforming our society? Be- because they're not dealing with the core issue. They're not dealing with the heart. Jesus says to these guys and to us, They're full of greed and wickedness on the inside. He's not talking about their behavior. He's talking about their hearts. So the question for us is, what is your heart full of? No matter how hard we try to posture ourselves or keep the the outside of the cup clean and pristine, the interior of life will spill out and stain the outside. For example, Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. You can't 
hide forever. That's what he's getting at in Luke 12. He goes on to say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Whatever is hidden will get uncovered, and nothing that remains hidden will not be brought to light. It will all get exposed. Now, probably the most consistent way that self-righteousness manifested itself among the Pharisees was through legalism. Well, what's legalism? How do you know you're being legalistic about something? Well, when a standard or a rule becomes more important than people, okay, if someone doesn't meet your standard, if they don't measure up and it becomes something you can't get past, if it becomes something that keeps you from loving them, from relating to them, then that's your legalism. And it was like heroin to the Pharisees. It got, it got them so high on self-righteousness all the time. Now, I have a friend, and he and I were having breakfast a couple weeks ago, and we're talking about some of these things, and, you know, what, what are some areas in which you really struggle with self-righteousness, you know? And so, so he and I exchanged these stories, and, and he gave me permission to share this. But he said, you know, I, I just, I can't stand name-brand clothing. What? He said, yeah, you know, like, you see the little polo guy on the shirt? I just want to rip it out of people's shirt. I just can't stand it. You know, or, or, or Air Apostle or Hollister or something across the, it's just kind of ugh to me. And uh, I looked across the table and said, is it uh, a problem then that I can see G-A-P on the buttons of your shirt? As in Gap? As in a brand name? And we were getting at the fact that if he sees that in a person, sometimes it keeps him from being able to relate to them because he's so full of judgment or just self-righteousness over that. Well, I'm not wearing a name brand shirt. And then I exchanged with him my issue, which is grocery carts. And uh, for those people who know grocery stores really well, like I pride myself on, and, and yes, I'm a man, and maybe some of you say, well, the wife's supposed to do that stuff. Nope. I like to do it, so I do it. And if you're on the inside of the grocery store, it's all the boxes, processed food, bad for you. you, You'll end up having an appointment at the cardiologist if you buy stuff in there. Whereas if you're on the outside of the store, of course, that's where all the fresh stuff is, healthy stuff. So as I'm walking past you in the grocery store, wow. Wow. Good luck with that, you know. That's, that's going to produce nasty things. Meanwhile, I have uh, organic kale in mine. I'm going to go home and make a smoothie. I'm going to live to be 150. I'm going to run marathons. And you're going to be dead in five days. Now, all that seems silly, I know. But, but it becomes serious as it deepens and hinders our ability to love other people. Because there are, seriously, times where I'm looking at other people and I don't even want to think about interacting with them because I look at them and think, how can they eat that crap? Isn't that gross, though? That's something kind of silly, but it's very real because it it begins to stretch into other areas of your life. The question is, what is so attractive about building your life around rules, around these standards? The Pharisees and the scribes wanted a simple world that was free from confusion. So they defined their life, and often we define the Christian life along the lines of rules. 
It makes life so much easier. You know what the rules are. You know what the boundaries are. Everything's clear. But if the central rule of the Christian life is to love you, then life gets very messy. It gets very uncertain, right? It's far easier to be legalistic in relationships and in life because it's simpler. You know the answers ahead of time. You know the standards. You know whether you're meeting them. You know whether you're not meeting them. And you know when everybody else isn't. And that was the issue for the Pharisees. Legalism is always correct, right? Love is often not sure what to do. Legalism never incarnates. It never gets into other people's shoes, and so it's really blind. But love incarnates, and so it's able to see. It's able to stop. Legalism is where we tend to begin in relationships, It usually erects barriers. It usually keeps us from being able to move toward people. But love tears them down because it doesn't focus on what you should do for me or on how I'm above you. It it focuses on you, how I can serve you, how I can move closer to you. Legalism is powerless to save us from the guilt of sin. Legalism gives other people burdens. Remember what Jesus said about the lawyers. You load other people up, but you're unwilling to even lift a finger to get near them to help. But love bears burdens. And if you're like me, you're caught seeing your own sin, your own failure to love, both in the the silly things like the grocery cart. But, But what if I stopped? You know, what if I engaged with that person and found out, you know, maybe that's all they can afford. You know, maybe no one's ever told them about Stuff that's good for them, bad for them, etc. Or my friend with the name brand clothing. Maybe the kid that's wearing the Air Apostle shirt or the, the guy in the mall that has the Hollister shirt. Maybe he got it from Goodwill. You know, I mean, it, if you stop and you begin to slow down, you can really see your own failure to love. We're far more like the Pharisees and the lawyers. And so we've got a huge problem to overcome. If you look back at the call to worship... The psalmist asks the question every human heart must ask and answer. Lord, who can dwell in your holy hill? Who can ascend? Who can be in the tent with you? That is, with you in peace, rest in security, be in your presence. And the psalmist says, it's only the one with clean hands and a pure heart. So how do you become a person like that? And that's where I want to finish. In order to become a person like that, we have to know love personally, in Jesus Christ. Knowing we're loved makes us loving. See, the good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus' work, we get cleansed and filled because Jesus ascended a hill. Only at the top of the hill, it wasn't a tent to dwell in. It was a cross to get on. He was crucified in the place where they took out the trash. He was defiled He was emptied of blood and even life itself for Pharisees like you and me. And if you come to him honestly and humbly and you admit how sick you are, rather than pretending and posturing that you're healthy, that was was what he kept challenging these guys with. Stop pretending you're healthy. I came for the sick, right? He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you true rest. The scriptures give us three-word pictures that illustrate the power of the gospel. They say we, in Jesus we get a clean conscience. We get a new heart. We're filled with the Spirit. See, in the gospel we get a new heart as we're born again. 
In chapter 3 of John's gospel, Jesus says a person has to be reborn to experience him and his kingdom. When God gives you a new heart with his spirit, you get transformed from the inside out. The gospel can heal all these tendencies that he identifies in the Pharisees and in us. Listen, it says, the, the gospel says the fruit of the spirit, a new character will produce right conduct. Not right conduct producing new character. The, the generosity of the gospel, the generosity of grace, Jesus taking my sin, giving me his righteousness, it demolishes my stinginess, right? Now I tithe everything. I don't just tithe, I, I, give, I give to my own hurt. The gospel says, the father turned his frown on Jesus so I could gain his smile. That drains you of a need to be noticed or well thought of because th- th- those things don't feed me. They don't help me feel clean. I'm clean because Jesus' blood has been sprinkled on my conscience. What's the assurance of pardon say? We can draw near to him with full assurance because of the clean conscience that his blood has given to us. It doesn't matter what people think of me. That's not the approval or the status that engages my heart. Right? We sang it earlier, my heart will sing no other name. When you're seeking the approval of other people, your heart is singing your own name. You want to you hear other people say your name, and your heart sings at that. Whereas the gospel says, no, Jesus was frowned on so that I could gain the Father's smile. The Father's smiling on me. I don't need anybody else's smile to feed, to feed me. The gospel says I'm a wicked, arrogant, self-righteous sinner, so why do I need to hide and lie about who I really am? The truth sets you free to be honest. And gosh, how I pray that God would make our congregation the type of community where we can be free, where hiding isn't even an option, where every nook and cranny is exposed by the gospel, where good friends help us, they don't self-righteously critique us. Listen, I was with two um, 60-year-old men. They're, They're both around 60 uh, the other day, and we're talking about just the sense of the gospel freeing us to, to help us be honest, you know, and they were, they were admitting their struggles with sexual sin. You know how awesome that is? The gospel's taking root, it's doing great work. We don't have to hide. See, when I'm operating on empty, when I'm not filled with the Spirit, when I'm not assured that I'm loved constantly plagued by a guilty conscience, then my standards and my rules become the way that I fill up. They become the way that I feed my soul. And that's the problem with self-righteousness and legalism. Underneath them is a motivation, a desire to be filled. Whether for God or others, I'm always dressing myself up. And how I'm seen by others, that's what's filling me. That's what's giving me life. And that was the problem for the Pharisees and the scribes. It wasn't just observing the law. It was being seen observing the law. They weren't observing the law for God's sake, though. Their faithfulness was for their sake. But made new in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, it becomes possible for me to obey from the heart because I have, as the assurance of pardon says, a full assurance of faith. See, if I'm cleansed by the blood of Jesus, filled with him, it makes heartfelt obedience possible. But there's another thing. It changes how I define the Christian life. I don't define it by rules. I define it by love. And when you live by the law of love, as I said earlier, life becomes messy. It becomes unclear. 
It regularly brings you face to face with your need. You say, Jesus, I need your wisdom. I need your power. I need your faith-fueling work in my life. I believe. Help my unbelief. And man, a church full of people like that would be the most honest, the most obedient, the most loving group of people as they followed Jesus, as they stirred one another to love and good works, as they encouraged one another. That's a church that would change a city and witness to the kingdom of God. So pray with me that Jesus would do that in us uh, as we come to him this morning and as we sing, uh, Lord, I, I need you. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do thank you uh, for by your power in the gospel coming to us uh, and, and, and in our need uh, giving us uh, the resources that we were frantically trying to find in, in empty things as we walked around pretending like we were full, but we were really empty. Our hearts were, our, our hearts were really seeking something else. They were seeking you. Uh, And so I pray that you would remind us, that you would empower us to come to you, to beg of you to cleanse us anew again and fill us with the Spirit that we might be a people who stir one another up, who spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we would be a people who didn't hide, that we would be a people who took off the masks and sought to be who we really are, as you declare us to be in the gospel. And that as we do that amongst each other, you'd heal our relationships, our families, you'd make our congregation that kind of a place, and that you would, through our congregation, change our community, and ultimately, the uttermost parts of the earth. For your glory and honor, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Uh, This benediction, if you're in Christ, is the, the words that should echo in your soul as you leave here. Uh, and they empower you uh, to be drained of self-righteousness. How can we who would sing a song like, Lord, I need you every hour I need you, ever be self-righteous? Yet we find ways to. Uh, And so as you go, receive this benediction as the promise he goes with you uh, and return to him again and again uh, and beg of his mercy and his forgiveness, his grace uh, to be less like that Uh, and more like we see in Jesus. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.